Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm with Mike Isretel. Um, Obviously, all of you already know Mike well and truly, and uh, he is here all in glory with all the hair to the to the chest. Um, so Mike, we're just talking off air, and actually we started talking about how he's currently in one of the best gyms he's ever trained in in his life. And this is something I think um, is becoming more kind of aware to me is people on social media and you see people training in these amazing gyms um, and you see them using different pieces of equipment you're kind of like am I holding myself back by not training with certain pieces of equipment and how much of a, a big deal could that make and if you were I guess looking to be a professional bodybuilder would you be holding yourself back by not moving to York and training in this one of the best gyms in the world and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that Mike like how how important is like equipment um, for being the best bodybuilder you can be in as a percentage, what even difference might it make? Is it something worth stressing about? Yeah. So like I think up until your intermediate years, it makes pretty much no difference to just be training with like a power rack and a pull-up bar. And then, uh, you know, as you get intermediate to advanced, it might make a small difference. You're very advanced and competitive, and especially if you accumulate uh, some injuries, um, then training with the kind of equipment that really works well for your body, doesn't irritate you, has a great stimulus to fatigue ratio, becomes something that can extend your career and by doing so can make you better um, and can probably also just grow a little bit more muscle than, than alternate things. Um, there are some things you can do by yourself and pieces of equipment you can access that are sort of really worth your while uh, and they're really simple. Um, one thing you can do is uh, get access to um, – if you have straps or I, I actually prefer VersaGrips. If you have VersaGrips, then all of a sudden your grip is not limiting on almost any exercise and that gives you a huge advantage. If you have Olympic weightlifting shoes, you can make almost any squat machine, leg press machine, anything work much better. Um, and if you have a good belt, those three things together can really, really just – they're not expensive. It's a sum total of like $100, but um, – it's really worth your while. And then after that, you know, if you can be at a gym that has, you know, uh, just a general cable station is good. Uh, buying a cambered bar is a good thing because it can, uh, it's a really awesome variation to use for good mornings. Uh, maybe squats, definitely rows and bench presses. It's really awesome. And it's only like, you know, the bar is only like 250 bucks or something. So it's not the end of the world, especially if you split it between gym, gym partners or something and then you use it for years. Like bars don't really break. Um, and then on top of that, like uh, some of the machines I found to be really good, like uh, nothing replaces a really good assisted pull-up machine. Like assisted pull-ups are just awesome. And they're a little bit different than pull-downs in a meaningful way. Do you have to have them? No, but they're cool. Another thing is buying different grip attachments, even if your gym doesn't have them, for a pull-downs can make a pretty big difference. It, like another grip attachment can inject two or three pieces of variation into your program that you haven't had before. And you can also do some different grips for push-downs and for curves. So getting different grips is really, really cool. It's super cheap and it's a way to make any cable station more powerful. Um, you know, do you, I will say that it's, it's a real treat to train at gyms that have a bunch of equipment because you can really just pick the machines that really, really work well for you. Um, and if I was a professional bodybuilder, not in the sense of if I had a pro card, but in the sense of like I made my money from yeah. bodybuilding, like if I was Phil Heath or Juan Morel or one of these guys – I would definitely train in a gym which had all of my favorite pieces of equipment 
And if that's a small gym that I just bought them for, or if that's a big gym that just has all of them, like Bev Francis, like Exile in Baltimore, where we're going right now, like Golds in Venice, um, a DOS gym in um, um, Vienna, yeah, yeah. like that is uh, where I would train if I didn't have all my equipment with me. So anything short of pro – uh, it's probably not worth it to go to move to go to a crazy gym uh, unless you really just have, you know, you work online or something, you can go wherever the fuck you want. It's certainly a great thing. But uh, you, what I don't want f- people to think is like, oh, I mean, the reason I'm not making gains is I don't have all this fancy equipment, yeah. this crazy gym. Like, that's definitely bullshit. Uh, but uh, if you're sufficiently advanced and you're doing this as a career, then I'd say it's worth it. Awesome. Yeah, that's kind of the the point I hoped would come out because i think sometimes you do see the the super advanced guys who potentially are online coaches or they are um professional themselves and making a living from it and they do like say oh it makes a huge difference having this piece of equipment and it may well do for them but um i think a lot of the listeners are people that have to train in a commercial gym and a lot of commercial like i even picked the gym over a fancy one like down like a 20 minute drive away or something and uh, it just had better equipment just they they have okay equipment so um yeah cool that's a great answer and the next question i had and i'm sorry to all our listeners who submitted questions but i have a cu- i had a couple of questions i wanted to get myself in uh, selfishly and one of them was the effective reps is becoming something it's really becoming a bit of a buzz term within the industry uh, chris beersley um, has really been putting out a lot of information about this sort of concept i know james krieger's done some work on it I saw a back and forth between you and Chris, which is a fantastic discussion. And I've tried to get Chris on the podcast. It might eventually happen at some point. Um, but I'd love to hear the idea of like where this fits in with how you and the system that you more so favor in terms of um, number of hard sets for accounting volume rather than kind of using the effective reps, um, whereby the last five reps are the ones that are doing the most for hypertrophy. Um, because I guess the way things would work with a system of moving from MEV to MRV where you're working three to four reps in reserve up towards failure in the final week you would have a huge number of effective reps if that's how you were accounting for volume um, and supposedly way more hypertrophy than in week one where you're MEV and you don't have as many effective reps and could barely be growing comparatively so I'd love for you to kind of yeah dive into that because I'm sure it's something that you've maybe thought about or now you've thought about it and uh, have some good thoughts mm-hmm. it's a good question i suppose i i sort of made an infographic about this maybe last week um uh but it's uh, i could make a more direct infographic addressing the effective rap so i think we need a bit more research quite a bit more to be very certain about what's going on i'll say this um it is true that the closer you get to failure, the more hypertrophic yield each repetition creates. Um, usually the cutoff is like 5 RIR or 4 RIR, but that's not really a hard cutoff. Like 6 RIR still grows muscle, especially in uh, people that are very sensitive to muscle growth, so it probably won't grow a lot of muscle in people that are not sensitive, more advanced people. So um, uh, I think the best way to view growth response to um, – in relationship to uh, failure proximity is that it's this curvilinear um, and I, it, so it, it's, it probably has what's called an S-curve, um, which you see in a lot of uh, natural and, and technological phenomena is looks like this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it looks like an S on its side. 
So for really like 15 reps from failure, you have very little growth, right? And then getting to around five reps to failure, you have this inflection point of where growth starts to really go up. And then four, three, two, one reps to failure, the S-curve starts to flatten out again. So, you know, most people don't train at less than five reps in reserve anyway, so we could just forget about the first part of the S-curve. So we just basically have this curve that looks um, like this, a curvilinear pattern. Um, you could probably call it asymptotic in nature. So what does that mean? That means that training with four reps in reserve versus five reps in reserve is probably a pretty big difference for hypertrophy. Training with three reps in reserve versus four reps in reserve is a big difference. Training with two reps in reserve versus three reps is a decent difference, but nothing crazy. Training with um, one rep in reserve versus two reps in reserve is probably a small difference. Training with true failure versus one rep in reserve is probably a very small difference. So if someone is chronically training only at five RIR, you can say, look, you're missing out on a lot of gains. If someone is chronically training at one RIR and they're not going to true failure, you're probably missing out on very few gains if we look only at stimulus. Now, so here's where the issue gets a little bit more complicated, but not, not intractably complicated. So uh, fatigue dynamics have to be considered. Okay, so uh, how much fatigue do you get per set with uh, failure proximity? Well, uh, the curve for fatigue is it probably looks uh, like this, right? It's probably just an exponent. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that means if we zoom in on that five RIR, it looks like that, which means that uh, five reps in reserve doesn't grow you a whole lot. Uh, but it doesn't fatigue you uh, very much either. Three reps in reserve, uh, or sorry, four reps in reserve, grows you a little bit more, but the fatigue is still not crazy, but uh, starting to climb. Uh, two and three reps in reserve probably grow you a lot, and the fatigue's not crazy, but it's meaningful. One rep and zero reps in reserve uh, grow you a little bit more than two and three, but the fatigue is way, way higher. So... What does this say to us? It says that if you examine one training session, uh, you can use the effective rep concept, but not every rep from five to zero RAR counts as the same number of effective reps. So, you know, you get maybe one and a half times the hypertrophy going from five RAR to four RAR. You get maybe 1.75 times the hypertrophy going to 3 RIR, 1.85 going to 2 RIR, um, 1.9 going to 1 RIR, and 1.93 or something, 1.95 going to 0 RIR. And that's cool, but then you have to wonder what's the trade-off of uh, is, you know, nobody ever does just one session. You have to do successive sessions in a microcycle and in a mesocycle to grow, and so you have to always be concerned about fatigue dynamics. So what we're really looking for is the stimulus to fatigue ratio and where it is optimized as far as repetitions and reserve. My hypothesis is that it is probably best, uh, the fatigue rate, stimulus to fatigue ratio is probably highest in the one to three RIR range. If you had to say put one number on it, I would say two RIR is my best guess. This aligns very well with what almost everyone does in training that's not a stupid person. Um, two RIR is a fucking great workout, but you're not shitting the bed and you can probably repeat it the next time.
And then you say, okay, TRIR is good average. Should we start with TRIR at the beginning of a mesocycle? I think that's a fine idea, but uh, there's probably something to be said for extending a mesocycle, getting the easy gains easy, and then uh, doing a longer mesocycle while fatigue is not really accumulating much to get more momentum going, to practice lifts more, to get really uh, get a mind-muscle connection going, get some easy gains, and then then work into the hard stuff. So there's an argument for starting a mesocycle at three or four RIR for that reason and then moving up. And then someone could say, like, well, so what about the week before you deload? How concerning is cumulative fatigue? Well, it's not. And then that little bit of extra stimulus might be worth it. So the week before you deload, you might do one RIR, zero RIR. So what this ends up doing is putting us back into the starting from three or four RIR and going all the way to zero RIR seems to make a whole lot of sense. Uh, first, because it averages roughly two RIR, and that's probably the best place to train for stimulus to fatigue ratio, but it also attends to the curious conditions at the beginning of a mess cycle where jumping right into two RIR just might not be necessary. And it's, you know, we can save injury risk and get a really good momentum going by starting a little easier. And then at the end of the mess cycle, just stopping at two RIR and doing a deload seems fucking weird. Uh, you can push it and milk it out a little bit further because you don't care about accumulative fatigue because you got a deload coming up next. So so what I would say is is, is that's the training landscape that is uh, birthed from that understanding, but I would also caution people at thinking of counting effective reps linearly. Mm-hmm. Uh counting like, you know, say 3 sets of 10 is 15 effective reps. Uh yeah, sure. And then so 3 sets of 10 at sorry, 0 RIR is yeah. 15 effective reps. And if someone says, "Okay, so what about like how many effective reps uh are if you stop at 3 RIR for each set?" Um, well, then it might be like, you know, uh, what is that? Two effective, that's six effective reps. Um, is that uh, really the same magnitude of difference? No, it's probably bigger than that, actually, because uh, if you stop, you know, uh, so, so basically you can have a situation where you do, um, let's say uh, you stop at two RIR for five sets. Okay, so you have 15 effective reps, right? Three RIRs, or if they count from five to three, or five to two, that's three R, uh, three effective reps times five sets. And then, so and you have another situation where you have two sets uh, and you go all the way to failure on both sets. You know, is is it the case that those five sets are equivalently hypertrophic um, to those two sets? Uh, maybe, maybe less. Um, but on the other hand, we have to count in something else. If those were sets uh, of uh, – basically, if, if those were sets of doubles at your 5RM and then there's others were two sets of 5RMs, I would say the two sets of 5RM probably grow a lot more muscle mm-hmm. than the doubles, than the five doubles at whatever uh, or the five triples. Um, but uh, you got to think that the reps before you hit your five reps in reserve are also to some extent hypertrophic. Uh, not as much so, but they do count. So, you know, if you do 10 sets of uh, 10 with your 15 RM, that's actually zero effective reps, but you will grow muscle. You will grow muscle from 10 sets of 5 RER. You will grow plenty of it. Um, so at uh, some point, the concept has to be realized that it's a, uh, it's it's relatively scaled and it's curvilinear and that reps really far from failure don't count you know, uh, for much. But as you get closer and closer to failure, those added reps don't count for nearly as much more as we think, right? So uh, so that has to be considered. Uh, and so the idea of counting just effective reps uh, leaves a lot to be desired. Mm-hmm. So I think counting hard sets, you'll notice automatically counts effective reps if you equate the RIR. Um, and in addition to that, uh, gives you all the other information you're interested in looking at. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's 
the the way you described maybe a, a bigger picture when if people were to just look at effective reps they'd be like well if i'm training at low rer then i need to be training with or not low sorry high rer leaving many reps in reserve then i need to train with lots of volume so they might think oh if i'm starting at three to four reps in reserve i need to start out with 20 sets and then i'll decrease my sets and then i'll train towards failure towards the end but i think that kind of misses progressive overload and what we know is like the prime driver of. So I think it's kind of that bigger picture thinking is what I think maybe misses something there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Menno Henselmans has some very good critiques of uh, the uh, counting, just the effect of reps. Um, it is a correct thing to say that reps closer to failure are more effective than reps before failure. But to say the reps are completely ineffective, less than five is erroneous and to say that the reps from five RIR to zero RIR are equally as effective as one another is probably also erroneous. So um, we have to take that into account. Now, the whole model I presented with the curvilinear effect and then the exponential fatigue, I think that should be considered and uh, then you work from there as to the implications, which I also laid out. Cool. Perfect. So now we will get to the first question. questions from the listeners. So this one is from Mohammed. Magoob, um, and thank you for being a Patreon supporter, Mohammed. So he has asked, I'm someone who travels for about six months on and off. I always train whilst traveling, but I find adherence to diet very difficult. Moreover, I have IBS and a very, am very carb sensitive, so tend to retain a lot of water post flights. What would be the best tr tips for someone like me in order to stay lean while traveling for that amount of time? Hmm. Well, the water retention doesn't have anything to do with leanness. They'll just go away in a couple of days after your flight. Um, staying hydrated during your flight, probably a good idea. Um, and uh, lowering the amount of junk food you're eating is a good idea. So whenever you travel anywhere, eat lots of veggies, eat some fruits, eat some lean meats uh, to the extent that you can handle them with IBS, and then you'll get pretty good results. Eat a little bit less food than you think you need and you'll be a little bit on the lean side. So when you want to have a treat or a cheat, it'll be great versus just trying to eat the same you usually do at home. Uh, when you travel, uh, fats and extra sugars and salt tend to sneak in there to foods um, because restaurant foods you usually have those things added because they taste good. So uh, any attempt at macros being really precise usually ends up having macros on the high side. So if you just lowball the macros a little bit, you're switching to a lower carbohydrate, lower fat intake, then you can probably have some pretty good success. Um, also, if you travel a lot, maybe when you're traveling and training hard, you can get a little fatter and gain some muscle. And then when you're at home, you can be more consistent, be leaner and do a fat loss phase. Because in addition, travel is a little stressful. And when you're eating plenty of tasty food and training hard, it becomes less stressful. But if you're dieting a lot while traveling, it can become a recipe for sort of a two-pronged stress attack. Couple that with a lot of times traveling makes sleep not the greatest. And you got a nasty recipe. So you might want to ask your question of do you want to try to push your leanness further when you're traveling? Maybe pushing leanness is best for when you're not traveling. Fantastic. I don't know, Mike, do you have any good resources for IBS? It's something I hear brought up now and then, but I'm not sure if, I don't know if Gabrielle is someone who's kind of clued up on that and how much Gabrielle is know. clued up on it. So yeah. vitamin PhD on Instagram, uh, maybe she'll talk about it, but uh, generally it's something to discuss with your doctor uh, because it's a medical condition and your doctor probably has some really good strategies for it and I uh, would uh, talk about that with them. Perfect. Cool. Um, so next question is from Ryan Stone. Uh, so he has asked... Um, 
So he said, this question was asked on the Stronger by Science podcast. So that's Greg Nichols and Eric Trexler's podcast. And they said, um, he'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Mike said, has said multiple times in the past that he believes the pump may play a causative role in hypertrophy. So would supplements that increase the pump, namely NO supplements, be worth taking? Mm. Maybe, maybe. Um so it's not super clear whether the pump itself or whether the things that cause the pump are the ones responsible for hypertrophy. Brad Schoenfeld has done some uh, reviews on the issue and he suspects that cell swelling itself is hypertrophic. If that's the case, then supplements might cause some hypertrophy, especially in the context of training. Um, the thing is, uh, they've been tested directly in quite a few studies and the hypertrophic effect has not been detected. Um, that might be because the studies are poorly designed, wrong population, or are not statistically precise enough to detect small effects. So maybe there's something there. Um, and you probably get even better pumps if you take uh, um, something like Cialis or Viagra because it's really good at causing pumps. Uh, NO is like a sort of hit or miss. Um, so give that a shot. And some people think it's a good idea. I'm skeptical but open-minded, uh, so I'm not sure. Um, but uh, you should definitely be seeking to have good pumps in, in most of your training from training-mediated sources as to whether or not the uh, additive effects of dietary-mediated or drug-mediated sources uh, cause more hypertrophy. Uh, it's unclear. I'm not willing to bet one way or the other yet. Cool. The next question is from Arthur, not going to try on that last name, D. <laughs> um, I've just had a very interesting discussion about pre-exhaustion with one of the members in our Revised Stronger Facebook group. Um, and this is actually something I also would love your opinion on, or I've been wanting to hear your opinion on as well. So um, he just said, my question is, would pre-exhaustion with isolation exercises before doing compound exercises be a valid strategy for hypertrophy? And if it is, for what lifters and maybe the pros and cons would be awesome to know. Um, as always, looking forward to the podcast. Always learn a lot from you guys. So what is the purpose of pre-exhaust? The purpose of pre-exhaust is to locally exhaust, locally tire out the muscle of interest in a compound movement by using an isolation movement. So let's say we want to pre-exhaust our pecs for the bench press. We would use something like dumbbell flies that do not hit the triceps nearly as much or at all, make the pecs really tired. Thus, when you begin to do bench presses and your pecs are already pre-exhausted, what that means is that for every repetition, especially the ones closer to failure of bench presses that you do, your pecs will engage their biggest, fastest twitch motor units for uh, earlier because they get tired. They're already damn near halfway tired, which might cause more effective reps to be done. And then, in addition to that, uh, your pecs now become much more likely to be a limiting factor. Uh, your triceps are just going to be pushing to keep your pecs going, but your pecs will start giving out first. Because they're giving up first, it gives us two good things. One, the bench press turns into only as much volume as your pecs really need versus just being another tricep exercise with your pecs along for the ride. And two, that pushes your pecs even closer to failure during that time. 
And interestingly enough, a lot of times pushing a muscle close to failure requires a crap load of central drive, like you really got to get amped up. If a muscle is pre-exhausted, pushing it close to failure is actually quite easy because the other big strong muscles like the triceps really just will pick up any slack the pecs can't. You just have to focus on squeezing the pecs as hard as you can and all of a sudden it doesn't take as much central drive because the pecs peripherally, locally, just don't have that much more juice to give. So those are the advantages. Now, the question is, can you get um, a really good effect? Uh, you know, So what are the downsides of that? One is sometimes when you pre-exhaust, the peripheral fatigue turns to work in such a way that if it's too much peripheral fatigue or in some muscles, much peripheral fatigue at all, ends up peripheral nervous system fatigue or peripheral fatigue of such a type that it, it, it interferes with excitation contraction coupling so that you actually get worse muscle recruitment uh, in the muscle that's fatigued versus better. Um, so you definitely don't want to like fry out a muscle completely and then do a compound because you might not be getting much out of that compound anyway. The good news is I guess you fried out the target muscle, so that's good. Um, there's also a, there's a radically inefficient way to train because you end up just turning everything into an isolation movement and then you have to do a whole lot more work. So it's highly, highly a uh, bad idea for clients that want general overall stuff and they don't have a lot of room for it. But a real good upside to it is that it, what it can do is it can reduce the absolute amount of load you have to lift in a compound movement. And for those individuals that train whole body, that train really often, they carry a lot of axial and systemic fatigue, it can reduce those things. So a really good example is doing a lot of uh, leg presses before you do squats. If you do squats first, leg presses after, it's a great way to train. It works super well. But you're so strong on squats that your axial fatigue, the spinal compression is really high. And because you're doing super crazy volume loads on the squat, your general systemic fatigue escalates quite a bit. So you train a lot of system and quite a bit of quads. Whereas if you do leg presses first, squats after, you train your quads probably almost as hard, maybe just as hard as far as how much stimulus they receive. But because you're using less weight on the squat, um, you are not axially as fatiguing or systemically as fatiguing. So you can save more of those uh, sort of fatigue margins for other training days, more squatting later, deadlifts, bent rows, and just not feeling like shit. So um, so pre-fatiguing is a strategy that more advanced lifters can use when they really need to target a muscle that's sometimes difficult to hit with compounds by itself. So for example, some people will say, you know, anytime I squat, I feel it in my glutes, I feel it in my lower back, I just don't feel it in my quads. Another way to say that is quads are not remotely a limiting factor. When you've hit zero RIR in your glutes, your quads might be at five RIR. So how do you fix that problem? Well, you do crap load of leg extensions or leg presses before. So your quads are like at three RIR when you start doing squats and then very close. They're one RIR for like a, a few reps and then they're at zero and then you fail. And you might usually be able to do 15 sets of squats at 150 kilos or 15 reps. Now you can do seven, but almost every single one of those reps punished your quads. Whereas if you do 15 uh, none of those reps really ever punished your quads because your glutes gave out first. So when you have hard to hit muscles that you just don't feel like you're connecting with well, that are never really themselves accumulating a lot of lactate, they're never really driven to failure, then pre-exhaustion can be a really, really great tool. Another benefit in some cases, especially if you don't take it too far, is kind of a mind-muscle connection yeah. enhancement where you know if you pre-exhaust your pecs for dumbbell presses, you really feel your pecs and you can really connect with them and do a really good job versus if you don't, you might be feeling a variety of other things. So pre-exhausting is not this magic tool for muscle growth. It's a way to get at the intended body part you want, of course, at the expense of others. 
your glutes will not get as good of a workout from that workout if you pre-exhaust your quads. They'll, they'll get a much better workout if you just do squats first and fresh. But if you want to target specific muscle groups and you're very wary of systemic fatigue and axial fatigue and you maybe have trouble activating those muscle groups and trouble having them be a limiting factor, pre-exhaustion is a very great tool. Cool. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, just to make sure people kind of take away, or at least I've taken away the right point. So it's used for advanced lifters because of systemic fatigue and you kind of get that limited because the big compound lifts, you're going to be using less weight um, and also isolating the muscle group better, better mind muscle connection. But the reason not to do it too early, uh, I don't know if you have like a number of years of training, you think it might be advisable or if I guess you have to auto-regulate that or like find for yourself but the reason not to use it too early is because effectively you end up turning big compound lifts that are very hypertrophy inducing for many muscle groups into being more isolation like. So you're just kind of making the whole process more difficult. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, very inefficient way to train cool. as far as time commitment. Mm -hmm. And is that something, I don't know, has Jared started incorporating that much? Have you, like you already doing that yourself? And when did you guys maybe start doing that? Just to give an example. Uh, I did it. Because I was an idiot a long time ago because right. I thought it was magical. Because <laughs> I read in bodybuilding magazines, I told some powerlifting mentors of mine, hey, like, do you guys ever pre-exhaust? And they're like, no. And I was like, nah, fuck. But um, I started to, you know, as I started to train with much higher and higher volumes and more high frequencies, I started to do it more because I realized that I can't just squat for quads because I will squat myself into an early grave before my quads yep. fill up all the volume they need. Um, so I started doing that when, you know, pr probably more in the last five years, but I've okay. done it for triceps for a really, really long time. Okay. Triceps for me is an example of a muscle that's really difficult to hit unless I do some pre-exhausting. Uh, so for example, if I don't if I just do skull crushers, it's good, but I need to do a bunch of sets for them, triceps to actually get even a little bit sore. Right. Um, if I do a bunch of close grip benches or dips, it basically just turns into chest work and the triceps are hit, but like not nearly as much as I'd want. But if I do skull crushers and then do close grip benches or and then do dips, then it's like a world of difference and it really – I can feel the triceps be more limiting. So for some muscles like that that I have trouble like beating up on their own, pre-exhaustion is a really, really cool tool to use. Yeah, I really wow. like that because that's now made. I have the same thing with my triceps. Quite often I find they need a high amount of volume to what I think they maybe should in theory need. So that's a nice little takeaway as well. So thank you. Um, that's awesome. Um, so next question is from Andrew. Uh, and he has asked Mike's thoughts on pause reps, slow tempos, etc., to hit the muscles more. Or is it a waste um, or just another way to increase volume and load? on the muscles so you would have the same outcome doing regular sets so essentially pause slash tempo reps versus just regular sets as far as i can tell we may we're almost certainly going to learn more about this later hey look it's jared feather in the background um jared feather he's I'm not going to say hi is he wearing crocs uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yes of course he's wearing crocs <laughs> um so um as far as we know currently, if your eccentric is between uh, one and three seconds, if your isometric, your pause is between one and three seconds, if your concentric is between one and three seconds, it has no detectable as yet effect on hypertrophy one way or another. So there's probably not much to enhance with slow eccentrics. They can be excellent for generating a higher mind-muscle connection if you have trouble with that or uh, enhancing your technique by slowing things down and really letting you feel the movement out. 
Um, but short of that, they're, they're nothing magical uh, about them, and they definitely don't extend any sort of training variable because – you know, um, they don't even extend time under tension, believe it or not, uh, because you just get fewer reps, but each rep takes longer. It's time mm-hmm. under tension is pretty much the same. Um, so they, the, what I use them for is in specific certain uh, circumstances and for variation. For example, to reduce the chance of traumatic pectoral injury or to reduce the chance of quad tearing, you can pause your leg presses and your chest presses when you get strong enough. You can pause your vertical pulling for the same reason because, you know, people will tear their distal tricep tendon doing heavy pull-ups or pull-downs. It happens every now and again. And a lot of times it's at this this part of the lift. So if you go full extension and back down nice and smooth, then you've paused and it's made it safer and so on and so forth. So I would use the pauses for those purposes or just sometimes for variation. You could do slow eccentric squats versus regular squats. Um, and sometimes to chase um, a bit of a mind-muscle mind connection, like you sort of been doing hack squats for a couple of months, and you're like, man, I just feel like I don't know what's going on on these. So you take some weight off the bar, slow down the reps, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's how I hit my quads. And then all of a sudden you move your feet around a little bit to hit it even better, and you found a better technique that you can now potentially even take to normal training. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Cool. Um, next question is from Anshuman, um, Radhakrishnan, actually, I've heard this name Ansh- before. This is our podcast. Everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so he has asked, what is Mike's general approach to trying out a new exercise for the first time? Yeah. So a lot of times I'll try out a new exercise. It's almost always at the beginning of a mesocycle. It's often when I'm traveling and I haven't seen something before, like a machine, and I always start out on a very low end of volume, and I use the first several sets as non-stimulative sets, but as feeling sets to adjust the seat height, adjust my body position, adjust the trajectory of the bar, the implement, to feel where is best for me as far as causing the least pain, targeting the muscle I want the best, giving me the best range of motion. After like, yeah, gee, you know, one to five sets like that, I'll do a few working sets and then call it quits and see how it goes. I'll see how good of a pump I get, see where I feel it, um, see if there's soreness. And if it checks a lot of the boxes that I want checking, that is a proxy for stimulus is high, then I'll continue to experiment with it and see if it causes any chronic injury or anything like that or chronic you know, de- sort of deleterious effect on tendons and connective tissues. If it doesn't, and if everything is good, then it's an exercise I'll probably keep around for a few mesocycles or save for a more appropriate phase of training. Uh, and if it has problems, then if I'll try to solve them, but if it, I can't solve them, then I will delete the exercise and probably either not come back to it for a while or not come back to it again. Cool. Perfect. And related to that, actually, I think quite a lot of people get into a position where they're almost kind of not scared, but they don't want to delete and replace a movement uh, because they are under the impression. And um, I don't know if kind of, I'd love to hear your thoughts more on expanding like the effect of novelty. They're maybe not sold on that and they're kind of worried, oh, I have to relearn a movement. I'm not going to grow for several weeks um, before like, and it's only after those weeks. I'd love to hear There's no evidence of that effect. That effect is a radical misinterpretation of beginner literature. So uh, you take new beginners and they don't seem to show a hypertrophic effect for the first several weeks. So even that's not yep. clear. There's multiple studies that show they show hypertrophy right from the start. Um, it could be that hypertrophy takes a much longer time than we have thought. Um, so some of that is sort of uh, pre-hypertrophy that's going on. And it could be that the people are just being trained too hard. You take the Dama study as a good example of that. Like you take beginners and you smash them with volume. Of course, they're not going to grow for a while because it's over their MRV. And then they, their work capacity starts to build. Their recovery ability starts to build. And all of a sudden, they start to grow. So it could be for all those reasons. 
when you start a new exercise you haven't done before, it is absolutely not clear that you don't grow for the first multiple weeks. Um, I don't believe there's any direct study on that with advanced lifters that's shown anything like that. Um, I may be mistaken about that, um, but there's certainly not a large body of literature to suggest that. In addition to that, exercise deletion and replacement has been used by uh, everyone who lifts weights and isn't completely an idiot to enhance growth for a very long time. It also has other benefits because it takes away stresses from various joints and other structures that could have been getting the same kind of stress for weeks and weeks and months and months. And then that causes wear and tear injuries. If you have a healthy amount of exercise variation, not only do you hit different parts of your muscles that you usually don't hit as much, you also avoid chronic injury to a large extent. So there are those benefits, and I suspect, you know, there's very few studies on even trying to figure out the benefits of novelty, but I suspect the benefits of novelty are decent. Um, so should you be trading off once a week exercises? No, probably that's not the best way to do it, but if you trade off once every block, every three mesocycles or so, it's a very good idea, and you definitely don't spend the first multiple weeks not growing. Um, so so I think that uh, kind of sort of out, outlines the, the effect of novelty. Um, and, uh, you know, sticking to one exercise for forever is nice, um, but sort of, uh, probably pointless and some has some downsides even, um, somebody who can speak to this to a good extent is Brian Miner, who has pointed out that, uh, uh overload is not this perfect, um, exclusively upstream movement. Uh, that it's a range, and that anywhere in the range it gets you some growth. Right. Um, so if you do a new exercise here and there, and you have a good pump and a little bit of soreness, can somebody say like, "Ah, oh, well, you're not going to experience that. Well, that wasn't overloading." Yeah, uh, that's that's almost certainly false. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I think there's a group of people who want to use the same exercises nearly forever, who want to not manipulate volume. And only manipulate intensity and who want to do this because they want a um, perfect ability to track progress and dose training appropriately. But the thing is, like in many endeavors, the input of the best kind of training may make the tracking process more difficult. Um, you know, uh, if you want to clean your room, uh, it makes it very difficult to track where the items were that you wanted to, you know, have, because usually you just throw your shirt here, throw your laptop there. Once you clean your room, it's a good thing because it helps you be more organized. But the problem is you've displaced everything in the, in the interim. So not all good things are necessarily things that can be conducive for good tracking or even feeling good. Um, so uh, I suspect that that group of individuals or group of people um, is trying to oversimplify the training process in order to better track it, and to some extent because of a deep-seated, I don't know, anger and <laughs> uh, desire for things to be – it's like a conservatism in training. It's a desire for things to be more simple perhaps than they are. Joe, I would love it if tension was the only stimulator of hypertrophy. I would love it if you did not have to progress in volume. I would love it if fitness and fatigue behaved identically and did not run across currents to each other. Um, and I would love it if uh, the, just the more you did a movement, the better you got at it and the more hypertrophy you got and it never went stale on you. It just so happens that all those things are probably wrong. And hypertrophy training ends up being potentially quite complicated for the advanced individual and no amount of pretending that that simplicity is descriptive of the process is going to help you. Um, so so there's my thoughts on that. Very well said. Um, and I'm really glad you went over the kind of I, – I think it's 
it's known as almost fact within the industry that when you start a new exercise, you don't grow because you're like the body has to learn it before it can possibly overload you properly, which is counter to my experience of when I rotate a new exercise and especially once you're more or less, you know, you're doing a bent over row and you're just changing maybe from a dumbbell to a barbell or what have you. Uh, you're not necessarily completely learning from scratch by any means. And also I've always felt the elements of what you'd expect from a good hypertrophic stimulus like you talked about, like the pump, maybe getting some extra soreness. My muscle connection seems to be better when I rotate that new exercise in. So it always seemed counter to me once I heard people saying, oh, you, you don't grow from it because you have to learn it. So um, I'm yeah. glad you went over that. Also, curiously enough, almost every bodybuilder rotates exercises approximately once a week. This includes drug-free and drug-using bodybuilders alike. And they grow very well. Maybe, maybe they're not growing optimally, but they're bigger than all the rest of us. So it would be quite audacious to say that they're completely wrong in such a way as that we would predict they would have zero hypertrophy as far as yield. So if you really think new exercises cause no growth, uh, Phil Heath, Kai Green, the list goes on to hundreds of IFB pros rotate exercises every single week. Now, how the fuck did they get that big? Um, oh, drugs. The answer is drugs, right? So almost every natural pro does the same thing. Right? How the fuck did they get that big? Uh, genetics. You, know, you end up running a sort of litany of excuses, and then you're the only cocksucker that never rotates exercise, and you're also the smallest motherfucker, and you're just on the internet yelling at people. Um, maybe you're wrong. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you're right, uh, and there's a giant misunderstanding, but that's highly unlikely. So I think anytime uh, the vast majority of people that are actually successful in an endeavor are doing it one way, and you're saying we need to do it another, at the very least, you should have some reverence for what they're saying. Uh, lest you make the mistake of being exclusively intellectual about your lifting and making some very erroneous pronouncements and then being proven wrong and then uh, just having an unfortunate time recovering any semblance of a reputation. Cool. So we have um, the final question. Well, actually, no, not the final question. Um, we have a question from Holger Dumsky. Um, and he asked, he said, in a podcast with Jan, um, which was recently out, and it was a great podcast. Good job, guys. Um, he talked about uh, his high-frequency training and that he planned to train some muscle groups four times per week. Um, has he already structured a routine for this? How might it look like? Yes. It might look very complicated, and I'll probably post about it on Instagram at some point, but I'm not going to recite it. <laughs> uh, I will say that it's sort of like uh, – I think it's something like – well, fuck, I'll just look it up. Hold on a sec, Steve. This it's, won't take long to bring up. It will um, be split AM and PM as well, won't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a 12-session routine. Jesus. <laughs> so it's six days a week. Um, I'll tell you exactly what it looks like. Holger Domsky, you're welcome. Good luck making <laughs> any sense of this. Um. Monday a.m., heavy legs. Monday p.m., heavy push and shoulders. Tuesday a.m., heavy pull, biceps, and grip. Tuesday p.m., moderate legs. Uh, that's heavy is 5 to 10, moderate is 10 to 20, light is 20 to 30 reps on first set. Um, Wednesday a.m., moderate push, shoulders, and shrugs. Wednesday p.m., moderate pull, biceps, and grip. Thursday a.m., moderate quads, moderate hams, moderate calves, sorry, moderate legs. Thursday p.m., tricep emphasis push and shrugs. Friday a.m., moderate pull, biceps and grip. Friday p.m., light quads, light hams, light calves. Saturday a.m., light push, shoulders and shrugs. Sa uh, Saturday p.m., light pull, light biceps and light grip. So you basically have a rotating schedule of push-pull legs every half day, and it goes from heavy to moderate 
to moderate to light. Ta-da. And is this based on, I guess you do some, like a lower volume phase and you've just come out of an active recovery phase. And it's like, I guess it might be based upon the fact that as you train with volume, you get MEVs, minimum effective volume, somewhat rise. If you increase frequency, then you have a better opportunity to increase the total volume you can do. Yes, so it's correct. all kind of based upon that. Correct. And high frequencies tend to be unsustainable, so they should be best be safe for the end of a block because you're going to have to you're going to wipe yourself into the ground unless you uh, stop doing them at some point. So this massing block, I started with six sessions a week. I'm currently in a mess cycle in which I'm doing eight sessions a week. I'll be moving into an eleven session mesocycle. Uh, and that will be three time a week training for all body parts or, uh, the smaller ones get trained even more. And then four times a week will be the 12 session one. And I will do that for roughly one or two months. And, um, if, uh, you know, you want to try this, don't cause I haven't tried it yet. Uh, <laughs> but I will be trying it in November. So, um, if you ask me questions about it up until then, I hope you're alive to ask the questions. Um, I also don't recommend anyone try this unless they've trained with six sessions per week yeah, for a while, eight it. sessions for a while, 10, 11 sessions for a while, so on and so forth. I would never just start something like this. Is You're almost certainly going to get crushed. Cool. Yeah, I might have to. I obviously have been training twice daily for a long, long time. So it's, I kind of like the idea of working up to twice daily because it does become psychologically very demanding after oh, yes. many months of, do well, like a year of doing that. Yeah. Hundred percent. So I like the idea of building up to that and then peaking and then coming back down. Because right now I'm second week into a low volume phase and I'm still like, I'm really glad I'm only going to the gym for like forty five minutes. I'm quite liking that. So uh, by the end I'll obviously be the opposite of that. But uh, right now it's pretty nice. Totally, totally for sure. Uh, so we had one more question and said, uh, what was the most surprising or most important result or experience in the last years for Mike? I feel like you get this quite a lot actually. <laughs> Yeah, I don't really rank order my experiences as most surprising or, or, or <laughs> <laughs> I don't keep a tabulation of that. This I'm also, um, well, I'm going to try to answer this in a sort of maybe interesting way that folks can get something out of. I am not an experienced tabulator as far as my way of thinking. I don't really value my experience a lot because I know individual experiences can mean a whole lot of nothing. I value formal data much more. I value theoretical data even more than that. I'm always thinking about theoretical relationships. I'm always taking the long view and I'm always thinking about the very deep concepts that unify all of training or all of anything else I'm thinking about. I'm very bad at, uh, don't care to be good at recognizing certain events or certain features of my own experience. I approach anything else I think about in much the same way. So for example, I have what I would describe as pretty decent dilettantism in economics. Uh, like I'm a, for a non-economist, I have a pretty decent understanding of economics, I think, maybe. Don, that's my one of my favorite hobbies. I read about it a lot. Uh, I couldn't tell you what current trade policy looks like. Um, I'm deeply involved in, in, in the politics is, has a huge intersection with, uh, or a huge intersection with economics. Um, I couldn't tell you what who the Michigan governor is or senator. Don't give a fuck. I almost never watch the news. Um, because I'm looking for deep, decades-long trends in how to formulate the best economic and social policies. So when people say, it's like, what have you learned from your own training in the past year? I'm not sure, but um, it's been a tons of little tiny things that have sort of woven themselves into the grand architecture of a really big theoretical model. 
So as far as like insights and cool tricks, I think other people are probably best to act shit like that. Um, I'm best to like look at sort of deep theory, like scientific principles of strength training. You read that, like holy shit, like this is a real framework. Uh, yeah. You know, with scientific principles of hypertrophy training, which is um, the, it's written, it's just being edited. It's going to be that and, and then some. Really exciting, a real deep dive. That's the kind of shit I'm good at. But as far as like shit that I've sort of been surprised by in the last um, surprised, um, I was, uh, I'm surprised that with practicing higher frequencies, muscular recovery actually is quite adaptive and it becomes relatively easy to recover in short periods of time. I was unsurprised by how not adaptive joint and connective tissue recovery was. I was a goddamn mess at the end of that process. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I suppose that, you know, that's uh, surprising. I, I, I really don't keep a, a running tabulation <laughs> of things that have surprised me. Um, another thing is I'm deeply skeptical of my own experiences. Uh, I'm not okay. so sure that what I have learned from my own training in the last year means dick or it's just chance or I'm just connecting dots where they don't exist. Uh, but I have been reading lots of literature. I have been looking at tons of trends and um, I've been formulating a lot of good ideas, I think, that make sense. So, so um, yeah, sorry. It's, I guess I, I just don't have much of a training personality. You know, like people say like, oh, you, why, why do you do Smith machine squats and variation? And they're like, well, do they feel good? And I'm like, yeah, they feel fine. It's high stimulus to fatigue ratio. Um, You're not selling them to me, Mike. <laughs> yeah, sorry. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. nothing to sell. Exactly. So. <laughs> There you go. No, I, I think you do. You have an outstanding job of not falling into the normal human like psychological like things that we just like traps that we fall into because we're humans and we're dumb humans. And we just end up doing these things. Um, and also, I, I like I don't know anyone better at looking and formalizing bigger concepts and principles than you. Not to just blow smoke up your ass, but well, thanks, that's not Steve. surprising. <laughs> that's very kind of you. I, I will like add a little bit to this. Um, there are folks that get really excited about things and uh, there's a lot of like every year they have this new thing. Like this is the thing. I'm always very skeptical about this is the thing. Uh, it's not clear that this is the thing. And for me to consider something the thing, it's got to stand the test of time. So when people are like, what do you think? It's everyone always wants to know what people think about the new thing. Mm. So what do you think about gut health? Well, we don't hardly know anything about gut health. There's not much to say yet. Um, I, I, I and, and a lot of people want to be the first adopter of something that they think will revolutionize them. Well, I'll tell you that short of genetic uh, engineering, nanotechnology, and robotics, not, there's nothing coming uh, that is going to revolutionize anything. Um, and those things are going to revolutionize everything. But like as far as training practices, like probably no one's going to figure out this one way of training that, listen, you were a fucking tiny incel and now you literally – have various sexually transmitted diseases because you gave 280 pounds of muscle and you just banged everyone and everyone loves you finally. That's just not coming. There's no, there's no, you look, put your ear down on the tracks. There's no train approaching carrying that shit. So what is reality is you look back on decades of research and history and athletic insight. You look at the current practices and you start to develop a general pattern of what you think is going on and best ways to move forward. And that's real insight. That's wisdom. You know, wisdom yeah. is knowing what happened before and being open-minded to what's happening now and trying to synthesize the two. 
falling for new shit and thinking it's come to the end of the world. This is it. Uh, that's the opposite of wisdom. Um, new, the new thing under the sun, that new trick, this new thing, this new way of training, this new way of looking at training. Um, it's almost always going to be a little bit disappointing if you overvalue it, if you, and most, many people do. So, so many people look at this effective reps concept. You're like this, this fucking explains everything. It explains quite a bit. It's a very, very great concept, but it has its limitations and they have to be put in the context of all the other things of training. And once you put them in context of, you know, exponentially rising fatigue, the fact that the uh, uh, lower repetitions and or the far from RIR reps do contribute to hypertrophy and also to fatigue, the fact that the reps from 5RR to 0 are not equivalently hypertrophic, uh, can't be added linearly. Once you soften up the concept like that, it turns into a nuanced concept and it's effective, but it's not like, oh my God, fuck. Um, and if you just use number of hard sets, it turns out you're getting much of the same. So, um, you know, I, I would just be just, uh, I sort of suppose warn people to be cautious about getting really excited about the new this so little lifter is going to come on this weird technique or what do you go with this guy the way he pulls i don't think about much one person and the way they do things so you have a variety of people doing it there's a good reasoning for it and it stands the test of time uh great like so for example you can look at like a deadlifter that's got a really weird new technique and he's pulling all the big numbers so first of all he could just be a freak Second of all, you don't know about the sustainability of said technique because it's really, you know, it's really awesome to see someone doing crazy shit until they tear their fucking biceps off the bone and then ask me what I think about it. I think it's a fucking good way to tear your biceps off the bone or here's a really cool insight. Maybe that injury had nothing to do with their new technique. Maybe somebody else is going to try their new technique and succeed and then another and then succeed and another and then in five years we'll know that it really is a good technique. So – uh, I think a lot of people are trying to extrapolate a whole lot from very limited data and you have to do your best to take new data and combine it with wisdom and with reasoning and with theoretical understanding and a knowledge of physiology, which is why going to school is a real good idea because they teach you that shit you don't really catch on blogs much. Mm. Um, and then after that, you can form a really reasonable idea of what's going on. Um, another thing about the effective reps concept uh, some people out there are just doing these calculations on it and all this stuff. There's a number of studies that have hinted at the concept of effective reps being remotely robust. It's like three or four. Man, that's not enough studies to upend all of your training practices with. These are mostly on beginners too. Who the fuck knows what the dynamic looks like after 12 studies on experienced people? I mean, that could be just fucking totally different altogether. So – so you got to be really careful in applying this stuff uh, way too soon and trying to get super excited. It's exciting to have new stuff, but uh, when you get uh, more wise in, in the technical sense, you're going to see new things and you're going to say, interesting, mm -hmm. maybe, as opposed to like, how do I get this in my program right now? Well, yeah. Maybe a good idea, maybe not. Nice. Yeah. And I think uh, at the moment, the reason hard sets are good, like being used is because that's the majority of the data is driven by set numbers, isn't it? So, um, something on this line, have you got time for one more kind of question? Yeah, cool. So on this line of thinking, um, something that is kind of come out as a bit kind of, I don't know if sexy and new, and I guess people might treat it that way is, uh, I think Eric with, um, James Krieger, bodybuilder wore his weighted vest um for his bodybuilding show uh, and obviously people might be looking at this now and buying weighted vests to help their fat loss results 
I don't know if you've uh, got any insight or thoughts on whether or not that's something you might consider or like something you, you think has much um, kind of benefit. Uh, yeah. don't know. I'm highly unlikely to consider it and I'll tell you why. If I wear really tight fitting clothing for too long, I sweat so much <laughs> that I'll just get heat rash and yeah. fucking die. Um, so uh, that's for me, I've given it some thought and I was like, God, fuck, I'd have to wear a vest for a long time. Uh, probably not great for me. Um, I think people sometimes miss the exact application and what wisdom to take away from it. The wisdom of the weighted vest is that non-exercise activity thermogenesis is fucking powerful as hell. So a weighted vest can be an awesome tool for many people. Try it. But if it ruins your fucking life and causes you a shitload more fatigue and just a huge pain in the ass or you sweat your ass off, you have like – you ever wear something like seatbelt for too long and it causes like a red rash on your shoulder and you're like, what the fuck is this? If you keep doing that, it's going to be real bad. So you know, if if you work a nine-to-five desk job or something, you're not going to wear a fucking weighted vest. Also, it's quite pointless to wear a weighted vest if you don't move around much. So for people that already move around a lot, weighted vest is like, oh my god, it's the end of the world. They're going to get lean as fuck. For people that to begin with don't move hardly all. Let's imagine this. You wake up in your London suburb and you take the car and the M whatever, all of your roads are named <laughs> M something. You go to your office in, in London, center city, and you sit at the office. You do great work. You come home sitting in traffic for another hour. You go home. You train with weights. You come home and you sit watching TV and you go to sleep. What the fuck is a weighted vest going to do for you short of bathroom trips, dick? You can't wear a weighted vest to work. What the fuck are you? Is that is that armored vest? Are you fucking scared of terror attacks? <laughs> so – uh, for people that are already moderately physically active, it can be a great solution. The real insight, and this is something James Krieger has been saying for a long time, mm. neat matter. So whether or not you do it by step count tracker or just just not even tracking anything, just actively knowing, walk and move, just move. I do this for myself. When I'm dieting, I'll have like two Diet Cokes with dinner and I won't take them both out of the fridge because one gets warm while you're oh, drinking yeah. the other one. But also, if I was really like, what do I want to do? I'm going to get all my food in front of me, just not have to move so I can sit on the couch. But I don't do that. I leave the Diet Coke in the fridge so that I have to get up and go to the fridge. Yeah. Um, if my wife uh, is like, oh, I wonder if the mail came, I'll go down and look for the mail. I don't want to look for the mail. I don't want to go up and downstairs. But I know I have to because I have to willpower my need forward. Uh, Jared and I will walk to the gym instead of taking an Uber um, and things like that. So it, whatever way you increase need, of which the vest can be a really cool tool for some people that's the real wisdom there that's what you should be doing uh and not necessarily being like all right if i put on the vest magic things will happen and i will automatically lose fat well if you put on the vest and stay in bed it's just a pain in the ass to have the vest on and that's it yeah i think um eric ended up actually putting on the weighted vest to be heavier than what he was when he even started his contest prep so he effectively weighed like 180 pounds with the vest he was 140 pounds. He started 160 pounds. Um, and he seemed to think there was like some hypertrophy that could have occurred. Um, and he certainly said his legs were looking better because of it. But I guess these are, for me, it was similar to you. It was kind of the neat aspect of you could keep your steps the same and kind of add the weight that you lost so that you don't necessarily have those efficiency losses in the same way. But I think sure. you're always going to be battling against yourself because the body's smart. Just trying to eat away at kind of yeah. you being lazy. Yeah, so here's another consideration. That the gentleman that did that, uh, James Kruger's client, and he's, he's probably got his head wrapped around his shoulders pretty tight and he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And he's not a lazy piece of shit like most of us. A lot of us would put on the weighted vest, it would be that much more discouraged from doing anything. Uh, so the weighted vest could cause a compounding effect where your knee goes down even more because you're like, fuck, I had the weighted vest on. I'm not getting up to do shit. <laughs> um, you start taking a little weird shortcuts everywhere, right? So it's, it's definitely a thing. Uh, that being said, it's a, it's a great idea. 
Um, and I used to actually do cardio with ankle weights on. Um, but, uh, you know, if it's convenient for you um, and it's worth your while, it sounds like a good idea. And if it doesn't interfere with the rest of your life, if it's any of those other things, then sweet. I almost certainly won't be using it because with my high volume, high frequency training in my jujitsu practice, I don't really have a trouble any on the calorie burning end. Yeah. I just don't. So I just burn a shitload of calories all the time and I have to eat you know, make sure not to cut my diet as low as I want because I get into the situation where I just basically shut everything down because I'm not eating enough. Mm -hmm. So I have to eat enough to make sure that the metabolism and everything in my need operates smoothly and that I slowly and steadily lose body fat. But for folks that moving around plenty, uh, but they would like help with burning more body fat, I think a weight of vest is a good idea. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. That's everything I've got for you this evening. Super. Thank you very much for the brilliant q and I know people love these. Um, and I don't know if you've got anything in the kind of lineup that you need to talk about or you've got anything coming out. I know the hypertrophy ebook, I don't think really need to even sell that to our audience. I think everyone listening is probably going to pick one up or they better. Um, otherwise, what are they doing? <laughs> yeah, for real. Let me make a quick announcement as I scroll to October in my calendar. On the weekend of October 19th, there will be a seminar of RP, myself, Melissa Davis, James Hoffman, Gabrielle Fondaro. We will be in Dublin, Ireland, where we will be fighting the IRA uh, for a unified Great Britain. Steve, doesn't that make you happy? <laughs> You have that colonial element to you. Um, no, on a serious note, we're going to be doing a seminar in Dublin. Ireland people, I'm totally fucking kidding. Please, for love of God, don't kill us. Secretly, we're coming to make sure you're liberated forever <laughs> from British rule. Steve, no offense. Um, but uh, that's the deal. It's going to be super awesome. More details to come. And there's details on the RP site already. Everyone who's everyone in Dublin is going to be there. Um, and personally, I can't wait to go to Dublin and see my friends and get proper fucked because God damn, those people can use drugs and drink <laughs> like the world is coming to a fuck. And holy shit, Irish people handle their, their liquor like I, I've never seen anything like that in my entire life short of like Russian people, which are a special <laughs> class of fucked up. So, um, yeah, super fun. Have you had a Guinness before, Mike? Yes. You've had I don't them. like alcohol at all. No. I hate how it tastes. Guinness is like – I have like half a Guinness and I'm like full for 10 hours. <laughs> uh, it's the thickest thing ever. Perfect uh, dieting. But, uh, like just have half a pint again. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the good news is I'm bringing James Hoffman and he can drink I bet. quite well. So he's super <laughs> excited. Fantastic. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you again, Mike. And we'll talk to you soon. Peace. Thanks.